so it'll happen at 1.30 p.m. when I'm coming to open the bar, and I walk down to get my Starbucks. Like, not even a two-minute walk. I'll get sex your ass three, four times. Coming up on Carolina Connection, people who work on Franklin Street say that harassment has become a major problem. Good morning, I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Brianna Atkinson. This week, we'll hear what community members are doing to ease fears about downtown safety. Meanwhile, police say there's been a rise in gun violence throughout Chapel Hill. UNC will host the World Anti-Bullying Forum. A new analysis may change the way you look at characters in Disney movies. And some UNC students will get moving on the dance floor. It provides me with a great community with a lot of friends. It's a great source of exercise, but it's fun, so I don't even feel like I'm exercising. And it just makes me feel a lot happier when I've been moving and dancing. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. We begin this week with two stories about safety in Chapel Hill. Some Chapel Hill residents have reported feeling less safe on Franklin Street than they used to. The Chapel Hill police and local business owners say that Franklin is not unsafe, but they are working to ease people's concerns. I spoke to a Chapel Hill bartender to understand her experience. Franklin Street is known for its entertainment and nightlife, and Michaela Hensley is a part of that. She attends the bar here at the Blue Horn Lounge, right next to the Varsity Theater on East Franklin. But in the three years she's worked here, she says the area has changed. She says almost every day now, men harass her when she walks to and from work. So it'll happen at 1.30 p.m. when I'm coming to open the bar, and I walk down to get my Starbucks. Like, not even a two-minute walk. I'll get sex your ass three, four times. While there isn't much she can do to stop the harassment, Hensley says that she now takes precautions getting to work in the afternoon and going to her car after dark. I carry a lot of knives. A lot of knives. At all times. I try and park right across the street or right down the street if I can. I never park in the parking garage. Last time I did was when the power to the parking garage went out. I was like, mm -mm, nope, absolutely not. I'm not walking there alone. Hensley says some of the men who harass her appear to be homeless but she says she doesn't want people to place the blame on all homeless people. This is a major problem, and I think like a lot of the town is calling it a homelessness issue, and it's not. We, are, we actually have plenty of homeless friends from the bar, um, some that look after the bar for us when we're not here. Statistics from the Chapel Hill Police Department show that reports of harassment on Franklin Street increased from 9 to 19 last year, but are back down to 6 so far this year, though not all cases are reported. It's not clear how many involve homeless people, but Salissa Lehue, the assistant chief of police, says that the homeless presence on Franklin is a challenge for the community. Some of um, our issues or concerns on Franklin Street involve those that are suffering from mental health and or experiencing homelessness. So I think that um, it, you know, community, we have, we have all come together and we have to talk about what the short-term and long-term solutions are. Lehu says when someone calls 911 about harassment on the street, officers will talk to the accuser to find out what happened. They then reach out to the alleged harasser before determining the next steps. That might be contacting our street outreach harm reduction unit that works for the county and works closely with our crisis department. Um, it might be contacting our crisis department directly, or it might be some type of enforcement action. It depends on you know what the call is and um, where the person's at and what the needs are at that time. Some offenders end up in the Street Outreach Harm Reduction and Deflection Program, or SORAD a program sponsored by the town of Chapel Hill in Orange County. 
It provides homeless people and other vulnerable populations a reliable resource to receive support. Matt Gladick, the executive director of the Chapel Hill Downtown Partnership, praises the program. I, we think that we're seeing is that there are more threats happening and that's causing a perception, an honest perception. You know, it's a valid concern when your, your safety is threatened. And so we want to make sure that we're creating an environment downtown that's um, safe and welcoming for everybody. But Gladick, whose group represents downtown businesses, wants everyone to know that Franklin Street is still safe. So Rad has been really wonderful to work with because they build relationships and they build trust and that makes people more likely to accept help. I think they've also done a great job of helping to demonstrate where the holes in our social safety net are, which will hopefully lead to some longer-term solutions that we can push for. Back at the bar, Hensley says she agrees that downtown should be safe and welcoming, but she wants the town and the police to do more and more aggressively punish people who harass others on the street. I think that all of the programs like the SORAD is a great idea for people that are willing to use it, but what about those that aren't and will not and have shown that they won't and are currently committing crimes? Hensley says she plans to start wearing a body camera to better document what she experiences walking to and from work and perhaps post them online to, in her words, show people what's going on. People working on Franklin Street aren't the only ones worried about their safety. This year, there have been five gun-related homicides in Chapel Hill, and it's raised a concern. Have guns become a bigger problem in the community? Gerard Millman has the story. 51-year-old Michael Lee from Chapel Hill was shot and killed at the University Gardens condominiums September 27th. He was one of four people who were hurt in the shooting on the 800 block of Pritchard Avenue extension. I was sitting in my living room uh, at the apartment that I live in here at University Gardens with my dad when we heard, I don't know, 15 rounds maybe go off. That was Taylor Chupp who has been living at the University Gardens complex for 11 years. It was super loud. It sounded super close to us, so we got kind of worried. And then just like a flood of police cars and um, EMTs showed up. It's sad to see all the crime that's happened in the area. It's, it's definitely made everything kind of feel unsafe a little bit. Yeah. Police arrested 29-year-old Michael Henry Tuesday, October 4th. He faces five charges, including murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and shooting into an occupied vehicle. This is the second fatal shooting in the area since August. In the past few months, it's definitely the uneasiness and the tension has grown. I think a lot of people just don't really feel as safe as they used to. Like, as I don't think a lot of people can say they feel as safe as they would like a year ago. Chapel Hill is generally regarded as a safe place. Police reports say three homicides occurred in the first half of this year before the shootings at University Gardens. Chris Blue, the chief of Chapel Hill's police department, says that this year has seen more homicides than in the past 25 years he's worked for the department. What we've experienced this year, which is very unique in Chapel Hill, is that we've had five homicides, all of them gun-related homicides. Um, over a 10-year average, we probably average less than one homicide per year in our community. Blue says the five homicides are not related to each other, 
and the victims and the perpetrators are not strangers to each other in any of the cases. Despite what uh, we might like to think in Chapel Hill, there are guns in Chapel Hill. And what's particularly concerning is it seems they're increasingly finding their way into disputes and they, they end up being how disputes are settled. And that's not something we're used to in our community. It's not something, thankfully, I'm knocking on wood, that we've seen over the years here. And, and we are troubled by it. But it's not just the easy access of firearms that is causing this spike. Blue says that many of those who have been marginalized or disenfranchised before COVID are in a worse position now, and that both make for a potentially deadly combination. The world in many ways is a very des desperate place right now, and I think that's showing up in the way people settle conflict with each other. So do, do I feel like our community is unsafe? No, I don't. Do I feel like our campus is unsafe? Absolutely not. What I do think is, is that there are desperate people in the world who are in, experiencing really difficult times and that's showing up sadly in our violent crime categories. Blue says that with the exception of homicides and a couple very serious assaults, the crime rate in Chapel Hill has decreased the last few years. A couple from the University Gardens complex who refused to give their names for fear of identification and retaliation from their landlord were home when they heard the gunshots of the first shooting in August. And it's just so weird to think like when these when these horrible things are happening, when these tragedies are happening, people are just people are going about their lives and it's a normal day for a lot of people. It's the worst day of a lot of people's lives. Yeah, it's the worst day of their lives. The Chapel Hill Police Department has a full-time crisis unit of social workers and law enforcement to support people who have witnessed traumatic violence in their neighborhoods. The unit has been part of the police department for more than 50 years, and Blue says it's an effective way to help communities heal. Blue says that he has talked to people in the Pritchard Avenue area and will be holding neighborhood meetings this month. In Chapel Hill, I'm Gerard Millman. UNC will host next year's World Anti-Bullying Forum. The event brings together anti-bullying researchers, practitioners, policymakers, and educators to discuss their work. Leading the forum is UNC education professor Dorothy Espelage. Professor Espelage, welcome to Carolina Connection. Thanks for having me. So what is the significance of UNC hosting this forum? Yeah, so UNC, as well as other neighboring universities, have really been critical in bullying prevention for the last five decades, I would say. So some of the most prominent aggression researchers are situated here in the Department of Psychology, as well as the School of Education, also in public health and social work. And so it's really a testament to just how strong we are in the area of the research associated with bullying prevention. But it's really critical that we bring our international colleagues together to talk to us uh, to inform the practitioners on the ground in our schools and communities that are trying to address bullying. Um, we were doing pretty well before COVID, um, and we now know that kids are coming back to the brick and mortar of the schools. But what we're seeing is that the cyberbullying rates went they increased um, during COVID. Um, and so really the conversation has to start fresh and figure out like how can we address uh, bullying prevention now post-COVID. And so how have your years of experience helped prepare you for this opportunity? Yeah, so it's really kind of this monumental event for me because I've been studying bullying prevention and, and studying bullying in K through 12 schools as well as university settings for a quarter of a century, which is crazy to say that it's been 25 years. And for me, when I started this work, you know, um, in 1995, there were three papers written on bullying prevention in the United States. 
Now we have thousands, and I feel that we've contributed to um, many of those papers, but have really led the conversation internationally. So it's almost a peak of my career to say, let's bring it to you know UNC hosting this World Anti-Bullying Forum, um, and just a, a pinnacle to the 50 PhD students that have done this work with me in the last quarter century. So it's just kind of a celebration at the same time of really getting down with our international colleagues to figure out what we need to do moving forward and moving that needle. In your research, what have you found about the causes and solutions for bullying? Yeah, absolutely. So we know very, very clearly what the risk factors are, whether that's violence in the home, whether that's sibling aggression, whether it's the lack of parental monitoring, um, whether it is the schools that are just not addressing bullying. Um, and so we know the risk factors. We also know the protective factors. So schools are risky, but at the same time can be protective. So many kids are going to schools where there's no bullying. There, there's a zero tolerance. Um, they communicate with the parents about this behavior. Um, and many of our homes, the parents are you know, addressing bullying that's in the home that might spill over to the schools. What we really need to do is to figure out how to address bullying in this new world. When I studied this in the mid-90s, email had just come out, right? So it's very, very different. We do have a lot of research and evidence of what we need to do to prevent it, but I think that we need to recognize that it's 2022 and what we knew 20 years ago really just doesn't apply, that the lives of children and their families are very different, and that was even true before COVID, and now it's just even more dire that we need to address this. And so you talked a lot about COVID, what has happened since COVID that has impacted bullying? Yeah, so we know that uh, the face-to-face -face bullying went down, right? So the national surveys have said that kids were not in the classrooms for the most part. Uh, but we did see an uptake in cyberbullying. So even within Zoom classrooms and Google classrooms, there was uh, intimidation and bullying uh, happening. And so we also know that kids are coming back to the schools lacking the ability uh, to interact with one another and manage conflict. So we really need to look at social emotional learning and giving kids conflict management skills. And one, we all need to just learn how to interact again, right, outside of our homes. Um, and so the problem with that is though that that so much of the schools now are just focusing on getting kids back into the, the seats, right? There's a teacher shortage, there's school psychologist shortage. So my heart just hurts a little bit because I'm just concerned that we're not doing a lot of the work that we need to do to address the social skills deficits that I think we're seeing kids come back to the school having. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Two students suing the UNC system to get a fee refund won a victory in court this week. The North Carolina Court of Appeals allowed their case against the university to go forward. The lawsuit alleges that the UNC system breached a contract when students who paid fees for the fall 2020 semester were sent home because of the pandemic. The students argued they were not given proper refunds once classes were moved online, and now they're fighting for themselves and other students in their position to be fully reimbursed. Coming up on Carolina Connection, Olympic medalist Lori Hernandez stops by campus to give students advice, and we invite you to dance with us. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing? Or your daughter's first birthday party. You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. 
start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Brianna Atkinson. And I'm Lauren Lovett. Disney and Pixar have been shaping childhoods for generations. Movies like Mulan, Brave, and Moana have moved away from traditional gender norms for female characters. But in a recent analysis of over 31 films, the journey of male characters might not have come so far. Chris Kammerer has more. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. On UNC's campus, I asked students what their favorite Disney or Pixar movie was. That's a really hard question. Up. I think it's got to be Ratatouille. I really like Inside Out. Well, how come? I just think it's so cute how all the emotions live in her head, and I kind of like to think of all of our brains as having little people in them. I love that part in the beginning about, uh, you know, these will ruin your Disney movies, so last chance to get off the ride before it heads into the tunnel. Ruining is a strong word, but it definitely changes the lens in which you view things. Karen Eisenhower received her master's in linguistics from NC State in 2017. She's now the co-author of a new book, which takes a long look at Disney, Pixar, and gender representation. She and her co-author, Carmen Fott, spent 10 years analyzing over 30 animated films spanning eight decades, from Snow White to The Little Mermaid to Frozen 2. And the goal here is to try to establish, in the same way that we can see idealized feminine figures, for example, in the Disney princess movies, right? Skinny waist, skinny neck, beautiful hair, what have you. Can we see similar patterns in their speech? They began by counting the number of male characters versus female characters. Both Disney and Pixar movies, for the most part, there are far, far more male characters than there are female characters. Then they counted the number of words spoken by each character and analyzed several language features, such as apologies, insults, and compliments. Men giving compliments to other men is the rarest pairing. And this is Ooh, especially true when it comes to appearance-based compliments. They also found it was rare to see insults exchanged between female characters, and when it did happen, it was usually between enemies or had major consequences. In Brave, when Merida fights with her mom, Queen Eleanor, this is like the big inciting argument of the entire plot. If we look at the male character side of things, the story is extremely different. The vast majority of insults are between friends. Really begs the question of what this is telling young boys and men about the ways to build intimacy in their relationships. If insults and physical violence are being shown as like a good way to demonstrate friendship, but something like complimenting your friend on a job well done or God forbid on how nice their beard looks, this is dangerous. I don't think people are critical enough of the media they consume and you can love it and be critical of it at the same time. Nicole Elsie Quest is a professor of gender studies and psychology at UNC. She says there's a coincidence of when children are beginning to grasp the concept of gender identity and when they latch onto the Disney channel. That knowledge about ourselves is, is developing like peak Disney princess, period. <laughs> Preschoolers are really rigid because adhering to a gender role or type makes them feel like they're successful as a girl or as a boy. But as values around gender have shifted over the last few decades, Disney has responded. 
UNC student Aaron Schlachter reflected this perspective. Any Disney movies that aren't about having that romantic relationship save you or something is really important to me. I remember when Brave came out and seeing the trailer and there's this point when Merida says something like, you know, I'll be fighting for my own hand. I'll be shooting for my own hand. I love this line because this, this idea that she can be her own person, right? Like that her identity doesn't begin or get formed because she's married. Every time a new princess movie comes out, there's this tiny little explosion of think pieces. You know, like, is Merida a good role model? Is Moana a good role model? But Eisenhower's research detected some surprising gender inequality. Masculinity is left out of the public conversation so often. Studios do not really see an incentive to change what they're doing with the men in their movies, right? Girls need to see themselves represented in diverse ways. But we should also see the tropes for men change. I think that will be much more, in some ways, much more revolutionary. In Chapel Hill, I'm Chris Kammer. It's Latinx Heritage Month. Since September, students have been going to movie screenings, food giveaways, and other campus-wide events to celebrate. This week, Olympic gymnast Lori Hernandez gave the keynote address. Emma Cook has more. After winning two Olympic medals at the 2016 Games, Lori Hernandez has gone on to become a New York Times best-selling author, a Dancing with the Stars champion, and now a college freshman. And after starting her own college journey at NYU Tisch, she came to Chapel Hill to talk to UNC students who are also facing the struggle that is college. Hernandez not only spoke about her journey to the Olympics, but also about her own overwhelming college schedule, burnout, and imposter syndrome. Who here has experienced burnout? That's a huge show of hands. When asked, most everyone in the audience raised their hands to say that they also feel this way in school. And sophomore Laura Jenks recounts her biggest takeaway from the advice that Hernandez gave. Taking time to schedule in, do stuff for yourself, and just making sure like you aren't too stressed with school and everything. To do that, Hernandez says she schedules specific times in the day to meditate, take a break, and to just not do work. What's the point in giving 2,000% every day only to burn out by Thursday and then you have nothing left? She says it's worth it to take a break, especially when things get busy in college. And it's how she reduces her stress and anxiety when she feels overwhelmed. Anna Diaz is a student ambassador for the Carolina Latinx Center, one of the groups hosting the event. She said that Hernandez's words are important for the UNC community to hear, not just for the advice, but to know that the people we look up to are going through the same things we are. Having that validation and that, that support come from someone who's already successful in a way um, means a lot to students and that could be like the motivation they need to continue in their journey. She also says that Hernandez meant a lot to the Latinx community at UNC. At the predominantly white university, the gymnast and advocate attracted a buzzing crowd. Let's give our speaker another round of applause. Ready to hear Hernandez's words and to support the Latinx Heritage Month celebration. And Diaz says she hopes students will continue to get involved for the remainder of the month. Just simply showing up means a lot to Latinx students because we see the support that comes from not just our Latinx peers, but like everyone on campus. So it just also gives us validation that we do belong here. The Carolina Latinx Center is hosting a meal and social mixer before the women's soccer game against NC State, along with more events through October 15th. In Chapel Hill, I'm Emma Cook. Turning to sports, the UNC football team travels to Miami today. 
Game time here on 97.9 The Hill is 4 o'clock. While Carolina's offense has been stellar, the defense is ranked near the bottom of the NCAA. So what's causing the disconnect within the UNC defense? Noah Monroe has some answers. Since head coach Mac Brown's return to Chapel Hill, he's brought in 19 defensive recruits with ratings of four stars or greater. In addition, Brown calls new defensive coordinator Gene Chizik the best defensive coach he's ever worked with. Despite that, this year's defense is ranked as the fourth worst Power 5 defense in both points and yards allowed per game. So what exactly is going wrong on the defensive side of the ball for the Tar Heels? Former UNC safety and seven-year NFL veteran Trey Boston weighed in. Anytime you have new coaching staffs, guys who aren't, uh, who haven't been in that type of system, you're going to have turnover to where these guys are going to need to get their feet wet. You would, uh, you would love to have guys who come in and they play well, they look like it. This inability to stop the opposing offense boiled over to frustration in UNC's loss to Notre Dame on September 24th. On a long passing play, cornerback Tony Grimes picked up a late hit proceeded to butt heads with a teammate, leading him being taken off of the field. Although the loss was UNC's first of the season, the attitude from the defense in that game was less than stellar, one that, according to SiriusXM ACC Radius, Chris Patola, is why they're having problems. It's in part a manifestation of why they are where they are that goes back to the point of covering for one another. Um, I think there's a lot of finger-pointing, probably a lot of blame. Uh, the one thing you get when you, when you have a, a new coordinator on that side of the ball is you have a fresh set of eyes and you would assume there's a level of accountability guys are being held to the fire now throughout the year the UNC defense has shown promise but haven't had a full game in which they've showcased what they can do however in last week's game against Virginia Tech they played their best all year seemingly figuring it out they only allowed 274 yards and 10 points both season lows through five weeks Regardless of Virginia Tech having a notably bad offense, it's a sign of progress for the UNC defense. Now you got to go about setting the tone each and every game, knowing what your ability is. You know, we talk about potential, potential something that you haven't shown. So for them to go out there and finally show, uh, you know, the defense that can be, you got to obtain it. You got to maintain that. In spite of the underwhelming defensive play, UNC is tied for first in the Coastal Division with a record of 4-1 and one, thanks to the play of the offense and quarterback Drake May. If UNC wants to keep up their stellar record, they'll need the defense to ride last week's momentum into the rest of the season. And with seven games left to play, there's still time for the defense to prove that they can play as well as their offensive counterparts and help UNC reach the ACC championship. From Chapel Hill, this is Noah Monroe reporting. Finally this week, from cha-cha to tango to foxtrot, the UNC ballroom dance team offers it all. It requires no experience, partnership, or audition to join. The competitive team is all about community, having fun, and learning new things. Reagan Allen reports. In Woolen Gymnasium, the UNC ballroom dance team practices to the song, Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes. Dancers from various backgrounds and different skill levels join together on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights to learn, dance, and laugh. Rachel Phillips, the chief communications officer of the team, discusses practices. Tonight is rumba. Maybe they'll do rumba for a couple weeks, and then they'll be like, okay, now we'll switch on to cha-cha or on to samba or jive. Um, same with the standard dances. We'll stick with tango for a couple weeks. Maybe then we'll switch to foxtrot or quick step um, so that people can kind of review what they've learned and get a good grasp of it before we move on to another style. 
The team gets instruction on movement, rhythm, and form. They do a variety of different styles, including standard and international dances. Now, Leeds, those of you who were here last week, we're doing a thing with our upper body. It provides me with a great community with a lot of friends. It's a great source of exercise, but it's fun, so I don't even feel like I'm exercising. Um, and it just makes me feel a lot happier when I've been moving and dancing. One member, Ella Carter, joined the team last spring after her friends spoke highly of the people in it. Just having fun and learning to express myself and like enjoying that and finding things to love again. Leah Riley, a senior and the president of the team, has been a member since her freshman year. I made a lot of my friends through ballroom and it's helped me become a lot more confident as a person. When you're confident in being able to move and do things, you're also able to talk to more people. A lot of current members originally came to Free Tuesday dance lessons and enjoyed it so much they decided to join the team. You can join at any point during the year and just pick things up and so just bring some friends goof around a little bit, and if you like it, stay. If you don't, you don't have to. You'll probably say, I have two left feet, I don't have rhythm, I don't know how to dance, but we fix all of that. It's, it's what we do. All right, amazing. Ballroom Dance has unified its members and promoted community involvement at UNC. It has provided a safe place to learn and appreciate an uncommon sport among college students. Whether it's salsa, rumba, the waltz, or another celebrated dance, you can learn and have fun through the UNC Ballroom Dance Team. In Chapel Hill, I'm Reagan Allen. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Layla Pikamian. I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Brianna Atkinson. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening. Thank you.